I'm excited. A real episode. A real episode. You've been no more of me pretending that I understand what happened in a movie, and then being proved completely wrong. I know that people aren't going to go back and listen, but I love the fact that the one thing that you liked about the net was how easy it was to follow, and you just had no clue what was going on with the net. Ah, I think I saved myself at the end with uh, describing how it worked. But uh, anyway, yeah, please don't go back and listen to that episode please do or at least please, uh exactly. you know we got to get our we're looking at our stats we're heavy with the eye on the mm-hmm. stats um this is basically both of our retirement plans in in action we've <laughs> we've blown all of our money that's and, true uh, yes in uh, in logo for, creations uh <laughs> yes podcasting for the future so but i'll tell you what that logo we have for shared secrets Best million dollars we've ever spent. Well, I think we can agree. I don't think that we need that. We needed to hire a company to write an AI that drew the logo based on listening to the podcast. That was, I think, where we went wrong. See, a little I think bit we overkill. Just hired an artist directly. Well, because we're next just not time. doing. We're just not doing enough AI based drawing, and also the AI that we had written is like really close to Joshua level trying to start a war in my house, like small scale. He's like telling my wife stuff. That's not true. He's telling me stuff. That's not true. I don't think it's a good idea. Oh, this sounds like a good premise for a movie that we should later do a three hour podcast about (laughs) just three hours, maybe maybe longer. Maybe. Uh, So we are getting back to somewhat of the old format, but the base we're going to alternate or, these are going to be half hour, 45 minutes, depending on how much clever Dan and Kev they get up top. And then we'll be going into a little shared secret. Hey, oops, Dennis. Kev. I got, I got a secret. Oh, I can't wait. What is it? Security practitioners don't care about like security tooling efficacy. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, I would say I feel like the practitioners might care a little bit more, but the practitioners aren't always the purchasers. So, mm. so I'm, I don't know I'm, about I'm intrigued. That. Okay, let's. I got some bullet points for myself here, and let's uh, let me quiz you a little bit here. You have heard of the term false positive. I have. Have you ever heard of the term false negative? Yes. How often do you hear false negative? Uh, nowadays, not necessarily. I really hear it all that much. Um, back in the old QA college days, uh, you know, in college it, you heard it. Okay, uh, so. <laughs> but well, when I was QA. when I was doing early in the career, some QA stuff, just what I happened to be testing the thing I was focusing a lot of time on for a particular client really focused a lot on seeing if we could trigger false positives and false negatives. So it was quite 
I use it quite frequently then. But yeah, nowadays, not really. You always hear about the false positives, cleaning up false positives, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So let me ask you another question. So do you know what, co- you know what, I know you know, but what is coverage analysis? Coverage analysis is when you're running some kind of testing tool and you are seeing like what percentage of the code execution branches are being exercised. Have you ever seen anybody take like a security tool that they bought that does some sort of interactive testing and actually use coverage analysis to try to make it better? Uh, I have not run into a customer that I've talked to that's been doing that, no. Okay. Seems suspicious if everybody cared about tooling efficacy, right? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I think that is one good way to sort of see. Now, I feel like that is hmm, very applicable to dynamic analysis, security mm-hmm. testing tooling, right? Yep. Which is a chunk of what I'm talking about. I mean, we'll get into other things. I, I have okay, okay, okay. And I have I like just, a bullet point for all, all, you know, three or four major testing methodologies. Okay, here. okay. But, and <laughs> so, I would say for so my impression is that just like lately, I feel like just people are doing DAST because you know they're still doing DAST, mm-hmm. right? Because they've been doing DAST, right? Um, okay, and. And anyway, the uh, the only other thing I'm, you know, been discussing too is around like IAST. I'm seeing a little bit more traction with. Okay. Right. And then there, the coverage analysis is more of a, a testament to your QA and, coverage. Uh, and by the way, I, I'm not even making any commentary on, you know, the vendors of tools caring about. Yeah. I think, you know, like I'm, I'm just commenting on like what consumers of these things tend to value and compare. Right. And I, no, you're having like what you are saying makes complete sense, right? <laughs> like, I, I, okay. you probably are evaluating a DAS tool. You're going to run it against an app you own, right? So you can instrument that app to see what the code coverage would be. And yet, I I've just never have heard of that in a DAS tool bake off. You you've heard of it because you are the the go to like security and just general QA expert on the podcast, and that is a thing that's done. <laughs> More extensively or systematically, maybe not even as much anymore, but that was a major thing, right? For for people to feel confident in their test harness for application functionality and quality and reliability, they some <laughs> quality assurance efforts leverage coverage analysis. Yes. I will say, uh, the final thing I'll say here is that I feel like um, uh, developers, I've are do, still doing unit testing clearly and mm-hmm. applying code coverage there. So just okay. I, I think that code coverage is being done by some folks, especially but more not DevOps. for the use of these dynamic testing tools. Correct, that correct, absolutely. Are, we're uncertain in certain circumstances what kind of coverage they're getting. Now I yeah I, we'll we'll get back to that. Let's talk about just like not even tooling based but like in general the concept of a b testing of let me run two things that are supposed to do the same type of test Mm -hmm. and evaluate which one works better Mm -hmm. how often do you think that's happening in the real world i mean outside of people doing bake-offs for purchasing decisions not even even within that context how, how many customers do you think 
when they're purchasing a product, do a side-by-side apples-to-apples um, bake-off that emphasizes coverage of issues or like the uh, efficacy of discovering security findings. Yep. I would say my, I, I, I will guess 50%. Okay. It seems, seems low in the sense of maybe what I would want, but high in maybe reality to me, but okay. What about like superset testing in which is not even two things, but in the, the vendor bake off there, like if they have four products to evaluate and then they actually compose a metric that says, here is the bucket of real findings and here is the percentage of which each tool found from that composite bucket. So a variation on A-B testing, but looking specifically, you know, kind of using that, that uh, what percentage of the total real issues found did this particular tool find? And that way you can, for the ones that, you know, the issues that everybody's finding, it kind of comes out of the, the, the data set there. So quick clarification, are you saying that the customer or decision maker in this has a app with they already know the known issues in the app? Uh, you can do it that way. That's actually probably a real advanced version of what I'm saying. Okay. But I'm yes. just saying if, if, I, if I have an app and I run four tools on it, I generate the denominator of my equation by the, ma- the total set of issues that were real. Yep, I and then I generate for each one the ones that they the ones that they found, so that uh, kind of compares, you know, because maybe two tools are different. Um, you know, they have obviously it's, you're expecting some overlap, so they kind of deduplicate and assess. Hey, yeah, tool A found seventy five percent of the things. Tool A, tool B found sixty percent of the total issue. Whatever. Okay. Uh, well, I'd say the advanced version I've only heard of like one or two times. Just. Just throwing okay. it out that out there. Um, f- for this though, I mean, I would have to imagine that this is you know some form, maybe not an advanced form of this is done in most. If I'm running two tools, right? If I'm doing a bake off between two or more tools, that I'm basically kind of just you know even in an amateur type of way saying, okay, I found this, found these twelve things, this found eighteen, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. So I'd imagine, I mean, I would Probably definitely like contrived vulnerabilities. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that this is way higher. People doing this is way higher um, than the coverage analysis. Uh, than the cover, the separate, not superset. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm not positive on that, but I'll, I'll say that it's, I mean, to, to me, it's a little rare to, to go in and see, yeah, we evaluated these five things and, this one caught these different percentages or whatever in, in the overall thing. I, um, but let's, let's keep going. So we've covered, we've talked a lot about DAST so far, I think, right? Let's hit static analysis real quick. Mm-hmm. My question for you there is, how many times have you seen people implement their own rules in order to extend the coverage of their tooling in order to find very rarely very rarely and maybe a step further how many firms have you ever seen that actually maybe even coded around a deficiency in the tool right like maybe the tool signature or, or the signature to find this particular security bug was maybe a little complicated so they just actually implemented 
a safer wrapper for that. And then any, you know, instance of the dangerous function, you know, they could kind of simplify their detection of, of the issue using the tools by, by having a coding standard that kind of blacklisted the dangerous version and then relied on a safe kind of wrapper or construction in order to basically improve their ability to detect deviations for that standard and therefore areas of concern. I would say that uh, that is also rare in my experience mm-hmm. um, because, I mean, if I'm understanding the way that you're describing this, right? Like there's got to be some kind of static check that they're following the secure coding standard, right? And then to me, the way to do that is in the implementation of a custom rule. So I kind of see these two things, if I'm understanding the question correctly, sort of tied together. Yeah. I mean, it would be spot. Yeah. The idea being like, Hey, you know, this rule isn't working that great. Like, let's say that the, the, for some reason your engine has a problem with, um, the way that it, it matches for It doesn't really understand that well, how you're interacting with SQL or something like that. Maybe you adopt as a standard, you know, a object relational mapper, to interact with SQL in what you think is a safe way. And then you just look for any interaction with SQL other than that and say, Hey, this is, this is a dangerous way to do this. You know, we don't have detection mechanisms. So we're just going to like make those issues pop up as like synthetic vulnerabilities or, or just, you know, like, Hey, this is dangerous for us. Mm, okay. Yeah. I've not, not seen a lot of people doing that. Okay. And I'm not quite done yet, but, how many people have you heard clamoring for in software composition analysis for the use of like feature based software, like usage base, meaning like I want software composition analysis only to work on uh, the, the libraries or functions that my code depends on. How many people are clamoring for that? Okay, uh, meaning that it's going beyond just saying, hey, you're using this open source, but you're actually using these functions of these open source projects, and like, like that's where the vulnerabilities are, so we've detected that you act, are in fact using the dangerous parts of this open source. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that, yeah, that is my estimate of what people are really in a huff about in terms of software composition analysis, is that they import a library that has vulnerabilities in it, but they think that they're not using those those parts of that library. So yep. they, want, they don't want to deal with those findings, just the friction from what they perceive as false positives. Yes, uh, that I have heard. Um, so yeah, that, that I've definitely and, got some experience. And my point is, that is people caring about, and, and how many people have you seen disable rules because they generate false positives in, in any type of tooling? I think it's, that's very common. Um, that so, you, you know, they kind of reach a breaking point where <clears throat> they're spending more time <laughs> triaging and explaining away the false positives, right? Than actually yeah. reading stuff. So like, it's it, a time sink. And I and I get like I get it. Like I get the friction caused by false positives, but it seems to be a real distract. I ninety percent of the conversation around 
tooling quality seems to revolve around false positives and not actually, <laughs> you know, the tool's ability to find true positives or mm-hmm. in other words, false negatives, right? Like of, of oh, like I, I, people do not seem to care so much about the coverage as long as the false positives aren't there. And therefore the incentive model for people to make good tools is just like, well, let me err on the side of like not generating, like the emphasis on signal and noise is as in terms of, in terms of quality, like noise being false positive signal being true issues. We, we seem to really care about driving the noise floor down, which I think is one of the two things we do, we should be doing. I don't see the same or similar levels of pressure to drive the signal up, right? And mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in why that is. And I'm also interested in the thing about like this software composition analysis. I, I, think, I think that there's some weight to saying we don't, we don't interface with um, a library in a way that we think we're vulnerable and where we think we're not vulnerable, we should use as a lens, like a risk rating lens so that we, you know, for sure hit the places where, but I, I am not convinced that we are going to be real good when we put these feature usage based software composition analysis in place of understanding the real code paths available to an attacker. Because I think our technology, our default path for technology is to like monitor the application, monitor, you know, monitor or, or do some basic first level, you know, first order. How do we, what, what uh, functions do we call on? But, I mean, software security largely largely started as us not understanding how the back end of different functions worked. Yeah. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Like, um, so what code paths are available in unexpected circumstances could vary wi- wildly. So if you're if you're expecting to have an accurate way to really model what I, I think that that would require a very intensive, um, I don't, and I don't even know what technology would would be best to do it, but almost like, you know, it's, it goes back to coverage analysis. Like, can we do, can we do what we're saying there without coverage analysis of the backend library? Right. So instrumenting the backend library, which nobody is going to do the effort. It's less effort, honestly, to fix, to upgrade an entire library mm-hmm. than it is to figure out which parts of that library you truly use. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just, I just see, and I, I mean, there's, there's reports out there and I, look, I, I, I get it, but it's, it's all about how it, they're just making an assumption upfront in all of these things. Like we just make an assumption upfront that all of those issues, all the paths of those things are observed and known and that, you know, then we say, oh, you're not really vulnerable to 74% of the issues that software composition analysis tells you you're vulnerable to. I, I just don't see it as that cut and dry. And I think that, uh, like, and I, I get it too. Maybe it's a bigger problem than the problem I'm talking about that, <clears throat> you know, the, the friction of false positives. That could be. I'm just saying, let's be aware of it. And also, let's, while we're turning all these false positives down, Let's come up with ways to actually increase <laughs> the 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 types of issues we can we can discover, mm-hmm. and um, and that's a combination too of probably for most people 
um, writing rules that are aligned to the types of mistakes that your engineering group is making in your tech stacks. I think that that probably mm, is more dissimilar from place to place than we give it credit for is because, you know, okay, this tech stack is kind of particularly prone to this type of whatever. This language has a sketchy <clears throat> SQL interface. This language has sketchy memory management. Like it's a little bit more variable in the sense of when a vendor is going to build, build, let's just say static analysis. Like, okay, we have a vendor that builds and you can be quiet here because you work for a company that builds static analysis and I don't, but, <laughs> uh, but you have a vendor that builds static analysis support. They are going to invest their time first and foremost on the most popular languages. Then they're going to invest time on some stuff that they see markets from. They're going to get an engine that really works. And then they're going to build enough rules to kind of show people that it's working. But we just assume that whatever rules the vendor gives us is going to, is kind of it. And um, all of the tools that I've ever seen, you know, really seemed it from the design perspective to say, Hey, here's a good engine. Here are example rules. Go out and write good rules of your own to extend this to your particular circumstance. And that is almost never done. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, so totally. yeah. I mean, I see, you know, we see this a lot. Um, and you know, I'm not going to name any names, but you know, there are some popular tools out there, right? That support that support a bunch of different languages, and they will tell you, "Hey, here's the list of like you can go on their website and you can see all of the different checkers." And you it's know, like five you, checkers for cold. yeah, you'll go talk to some. For, you but, know, you'll go yeah, talk somebody, to someone and say, hey, are you doing static analysis? Yes, we are. We run this every single build. We never find anything. And you're like, oh, wow, that's good. You guys must be writing secure code. Like, that's really, really good. And then you go and you check and you see, yeah, there's two things that are looking for security, right? And one of them is like plain text password or something. Yeah, so, the, words, the word password in the text. Is yeah, like, and I feel so sometimes, like, you know, yeah, like ignorance is bliss, right? Oh, we run this tool. That's, that is, that is the, yeah, that is a thing here. And like some of those people are, you know, they signed a contract or they are processing credit cards with this, whatever it is that required them to do some type of secure, automated secure code review or something like that. Like, yeah, you know, and uh, wow, all, th thank goodness to the person who sought, who, who sat down and actually wrote a fully working, you know, semantically accurate COBOL engine and shame on the people that wrote four security checks for it because nobody understood actual COBOL except for the guy who you know, like extended the compiler into this thing. So I, I am, uh, I, yeah, I think that that's pretty much the point I was, I was trying to get across is everybody hates false positives. I get it. Um, and there's a big opportunity cost. And I think that you need to tune processes, you know, to, to reduce that to, to, to reduce frictions. And also like I've seen things where some of the friction just comes in with the way that people are the, the lack of risk context within these things. Right. So they write some policy, some just like human policy that says mm -hmm. we will not push this product to production 
if the static analysis engine finds any finding with it. Mm-hmm. And then they start spinning their heels trying to close all these low, maybe inaccurate things. They don't know how to tune the checkers. And they end up saying that, you know, basically, sorry, eventually they end up kind of giving up and going to production anyway, or like, you know, yeah. just the, um, you know, and that's a risk thing too. You have to kind of be, be aware of that. And I, you know, the last real podcast topic that we did, I think focused on escape analysis. And I would treat both of these issues, a, a false positive should be analyzed to say, how can we prevent this false positive from reoccurring in our tooling? A vulnerability that is a true positive or a false, a a vulnerability that is a true positive should be analyzed to say, what was our best opportunity to avoid this and how do we evolve? And some work should go on to start extending and understanding the coverage of these tools based on issues that are understood um, in other places, but maybe not detectable yet in, in the tooling like that, that those three dimensions are all important dimensions of, you know, how we optimize tooling if we care about how effective they are. Um, I think a lot of times we don't, a lot of times we get into situations where we've just made some obligation around running a particular tool, contractual, regulatory, whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. And, and, you know, and that's also part of the argument to say, I don't think people care about tooling efficacy, <laughs> you know, as much as tooling compliance, maybe in certain circumstances. But, but would you, it's, uh, yeah. Would Go you ahead. want to see people like, you know, extending the tools themselves or taking that energy and saying, Hey, how can we just avoid writing these in the first place? Sort of like well, what you were talking about. I think about it should be a combination of, I think it should be a combination of both. I haven't seen a lot of places that have gotten to a, a point in their growth around this to say, okay, this is a sketchy code construct that we're not good at detecting. Mm-hmm. Let's implement a, a safe code pattern, you know, a class, a, some functions that we depend on that are simplified and then watch for people using any of the underlying, right? Like get nail those, those complicated issues within those code once make them read only and then have other people call them. That is, uh, is something that you very rarely see. And I think that that actually is, pragmatically the best way that you can improve, particularly in the area of static analysis improvement, is to start pivoting things into very well-vetted components, reduce your, and we talked, we had a podcast out there about platform diversity, kind of goes into that as well, as like, th- that would be really hard to do if you had mm-hmm. all these different yeah. options available to people. So I think, yeah, consolidating, reducing, you know, being, being, building, reusable security features at a code level or service level or things like that. Probably that's the area of growth we have seen that's been impactful on this problem is, you know, people leveraging, you know, microservices or in some cases, you know, kind of looks a little bit macro services in places, but you know, it's, it's things interacting with APIs, you know, that does kind of concentrate, you know, certain types of security, like it becomes security, reusable security features that we can then, 
you know, hopefully vet and make sure that they're, they're rugged, right? Rugged and with respect to, to security. So um, that's happening naturally because that's also playing into scalability things, right? Nobody did that for security purposes. They did it for, um, you know, their, their latest and greatest, you know, container architectures mm-hmm. and, and dynamic scaling and things like that. They had to break those things apart. But I think that there's uh, there's secure, tangible security benefits that kind of gives you some of this stuff. If people go the step further to say, hey, wow, we've got this one place now to really focus a lot of attention and how it does a very specific interaction. This is the, you know, the, the service bus for database interaction. Let's, let's really make sure that it's, it's rugged at this point. And then we can somewhat trust that the, the code construction coming back to it. You know, it's just, you know, an, another breaking out through that, you know, that Tootsie Roll Pop idea of like only focusing on your your web interfaces or, or whatever <laughs> the the new version, right? Like this has been a huge thing in network for the last I don't know fifteen what ten fifteen years zero trust networking. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's it'll in the next five ten years maybe I think we're going to start to see people try to make a push for changing the way they think about trust in application and systems architecture um, to follow that model. But uh, yeah, we're definitely not. I've definitely never seen code that didn't trust, you know, in some way code that was next to it. <laughs> so um, we'll see. But my point or my hope is that people get more active in reducing the noise. I definitely understand the reason to do that. So improving the results coming from tools in both directions, uh, reducing issues that seem to um not be realistic or not have a level of, of risk really associated to it and uh, pivot to um, generating higher quality findings on that, on that noise side of things. I also think sometimes things get lumped in of like, you ever had like a real long, you ever had a conversation about whether or not to fix an issue that took longer than actually fixing the issue. Totally. I hate that. And I, I don't know why we get into that habit, but also here's usually how the conversation goes is at some point you give in, it's not going to get issue. It's not going to become an issue. It gets accepted with an A or an E and, or, or whatever. Cause it's, it's irrelevant to, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's even like, yeah, it's a viable in the context of this system right now. It's not exploitable, but then inevitably what happens is some other condition changes, like maybe there's a new type of user added. Maybe there's, maybe they add some admin functionality to what was previously a customer focused interface or something. Just some context changes or an external user starts using an internal system and they like, yeah, I agree with you. Okay. We don't have to risk adjust this because only our employees are using it, but then that changes. And you never even are going to trigger the ability to go back and fix and find that, that vulnerability that you risk adjusted based on today's risk. Mm -hmm. And so most of the time, unless you should only have those hard conversations about whether or not to fix an issue. If the issue is really hard to fix like design level stuff. And then, and then, but we do that too with those really hard to fix. How do how does it manifest when it says, Hey, I see the design flaw here, but we're going to turn this thing off next year. So let's, let's just turn it off next year and we'll use the new one. You've heard, you know, like sunsetting stuff like that mm-hmm. and people bench that. Now the next year comes 
they submit for budget for the brand new $20 million system that is functionally identical to the old system. And it doesn't get approved. Do you ever hear the security conversation that happened a year ago pop up? To say, oh, you know, you told us that you were going to replace this, so we accepted those risks. And when you don't sign the line item for $20 million, that actually brings back or extends the life of all these critical issues. You, we don't even get the chance, right? Like, those decisions are not connected to each other. And, um, you know, the, our our memories are pretty short, actually. Just well, Which, I, I mean, we're all so busy, right? But we're... You'd be lucky as a security person to even get the phone call to say, hey, our boss, we told you it was going to sunset. Um, we didn't get the budget for it, so we're going to extend life of this thing. We need to get a remediation plan going for those issues that we previously thought we didn't have to fix, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that this is very rare, and the only situations that I see, cause, like, you know, people appropriately handling this is when they are using some official system, like a ticketing system to track exceptions and set deadlines and get alerting when things go beyond that. Right. Cause you're right. Mm -hmm. We forget. So if you've got a spreadsheet, you've got something, you don't have a robust process to review wherever it is, you're squirreling away all of your risk exceptions. Right. If you don't have something set up, tool wise to alert you right to remind you yeah. when these things yeah you, good luck it, it's really tough and i mean it doesn't have to be even a big thing like that right it could be okay i've i've seen a i've seen programs set up that that the secure development lifecycle kicks in on software projects and the rule of thumb there is the software project has to cost you know $100,000 or more, say, right? And a couple things happen, but let's one thing that happens is people can kind of game that to say, oh, yeah, I've got four software projects coming up and it's four phases of building one piece of software so they don't trigger all this, you know, security hassle. Okay. And I know that you you see the good in everybody. <laughs> you don't believe in any of these these things that were happening, but I've seen I've seen versions <laughs> of that happen. And then the second thing is like, okay, you know, the risk, we went into a project with a risk rating based on no external user or some presumption or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's not a project that changes that circumstance. It's a business model change. We're going to now start letting our sales team go on the road. So we're going to flip this firewall rule so they can hit this application from the road. And those little change control things are never connected to the risk of applications and software security context and things like that too. So those, so you're completely changing and most programs just are not set up with the right triggers to say, okay, this went from an external application to an internal application, whatever. And therefore it's got to, we, we've got to get this testing done, you know, within this time frame. That's a pretty complicated workflow to get into a develop. Most development life cycles aren't that complicated. Most software security initiatives are, 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 yeah, I mean that is a complicated to keep up with the pace of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that can be because you're basically saying like, okay, we did the threat model, we didn't consider these risks cuz they're not applicable to the way that this is architected and you don't really mm -hmm. record things that aren't applicable anywhere, right? So exactly. That, I mean, yeah. the trust boundary changed, yeah. right? But what's the trigger to update that? What's the, you know, what how do we maintain 
currency on, I mean, threat model is a good example. It's hard to do with any level of granularity and consistency and it's hard to scale. So you really kind of reserve that, that capability to apply to kind of that upper echelon of risk apps. And if you don't have visibility to stuff in operations, moving risk levels, it's going to be really hard to kind of plumb in and, and kick it up when it, when it does change. Yeah. At least within, I mean, you might catch it on your yearly review or so, you know, some type of, of annual gut check on that stuff of go, Hey, you got to go into CMDB and update the, the flag on external or internal users or something like that. Right. Or a data change, right. Oh, you know, Hey, this database didn't used to contain any customer information. Now it does changes the risk level change. I mean, that stuff happens all the time in operations and our hooks and visibility in the operations as software security people are generally less. I mean, you could go to a place and it could be real heavy on operations level security work, or you could go to a place that has almost no insight into after you know software is released into production, whatever that means. If it means you're implanting a, a defibrillator in somebody's body, or it means you're you're um, mailing a, a red floppy disk with a virus on it, whatever the case. May be. Yeah, I will. You know, I will say I think that. I have noticed uh, or I've seen like mm, maybe two products that are taking application metadata into consideration, right? When uh, like in part of the pipeline, okay? Mm -hmm. And I like this idea and just generically, and I think that you could like, well, I like this idea, right? Because you can set up, you could theoretically set up alerting when some certain metadata changes, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you had mentioned descriptions in a CMDB, um, or if, you know, you've got just some sort of naive fields on uh, external facing or internal facing. So when it notices that, Hey, I was internal facing and now I've been flipped to external, you can send a, you know, some sort of notification that's like, did you guys you know, just making sure that you double checked and did this thing, you know, that you reconsidered the threat model or whatever. Um, so I think that that, that, that is very intriguing. Um, because yeah, maybe not everyone has like got the time, the resources to do that full threat model, but there's some key indicators where you're like, if we see this change internal, external, we should definitely just make sure that we bring it to our attention again. Yeah, I, I'm, I definitely. And even if I, it's not as advanced of that, like describing our software security programs, application security programs, initiatives, whatever you want to call them, codifying that into a rigorous description is kind of important in terms of like, here are capabilities, here are the activities that we have, here's our coverage levels, you know, here's some, like, actually modeling your program, what I'll call somewhat formally, there's not a ton of methodologies out there to do it, but I think that there's a real value in that too. Like, so you're, you're talking about, yeah, the plumbing of pipelines and things like that. I would say that those are, you know, the kind of as code version of software security Mm -hmm. programs, right? They make risk decisions, they apply activities to it, but also just even like, how do you mature something, right? There's a lot of, of, uh, you know, if you, if you take a, program modeling approach. We have a threat modeling approach that is, is kind of has a, 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 gives us a process to consider um, application security 
design flaws and control effectiveness. We can have a process that considers the efficacy of our secure development program and is, you know, assessed with similar, you know, you have knowledge bases that you input, you make decisions and the, the more micro decisions you can make, Hey, this one activity, we could really benefit from automation because it's generating a lot of friction and that would let us expand the coverage of it. Those, those are much, those improvements are much easier to see when you've put some effort into, into really, you know, describing your program at that layer, which as somebody who is, um, you know, ramping up in a new job where, building a software security initiative and maturing that is, uh, is part of my, my new gig. I definitely am spending a lot of time in, in that space. And I, I, I can, I am almost sure that it's going to pay off. So. <laughs> Very encouraging words. All right. Uh, we got to get back into the hang of the old rhythm. I think I, now you did or did not get the most, the Morse code, that I left on an audio cassette uh, in your tape deck, which your car does have a tape deck as a uh, fine luxury automobile. (laughs) And, and uh, so, so I assume that this morning when you woke up, you saw that tape, you put it in the tape deck and you heard me say on that tape uh, what I believe this to be. But first, before we do that, on a scale of one to ten, how how much did my argument uh, convince you of this premise that people do not care about tooling efficacy? I was already. Uh, I mean, I okay. Uh, I was already kind of a firm believer. I think that user experience okay. is is valued more in evaluations than than tool efficacy than not. Um, okay. okay. So anyway, I'm already pretty high. So I would say, I believe that to be true eight. All right. You're going to run down to your car. We'll edit this out. Okay. Yep. I'm, but you're going to run down to your car, start it up. You'll mm-hmm. probably have to jump start it Cause I, I'm guessing you haven't driven in about two months and your battery's <laughs> dead. I do have that little, uh, battery charger or jumper thing uh-huh. that you recommended. It's fantastic. Uh-huh. Boom. And you probably use it every two months. And every two months. Okay. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to go run down. Okay. okay. So edit this part out. Okay. Bloop, 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 bloop. Me, 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 okay. I'm back. Okay. What did I say on the tape? Okay. All right. I'm back. All right, Dennis. When you started the car, mm-hmm. one, you thought I was going to blow you up. Right, you thought I had. <laughs> I, I didn't is, think that this was an elaborate ruse to finally you, you off use, me. You use one of those little mirrors. One of those little like uh, long. <laughs> it looks like a selfie cam yes. with a mirror, so you can mm-hmm. look under your car. I did. Uh, so yes, I would never. I love you. What? What? Uh, what? What was my dulcet tone saying? <sighs> okay, Dennis, I rate this. <laughs> the velvet oh. fog said eight. We matched. We're buddies. Oh it's my so God. good to kick this off as bud buds. Oh, just reconfirming best friends. Yeah. Yes. Besties for life. You tipped that over and it's infinity. Like how much I love Dennis. <laughs> uh, this is weird. Right. I just like, we are off to such a great start. On strong, this yeah, new... it's a strong return. We're coming oh. back. We're fired up. 
you had a lot of thoughts on this one, which has I never happened before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually participating in the podcast. Yeah. That's, oh yeah. Highly, strongly love wow. it. Maybe, maybe this season we're going to, we're going to do it. We're going to bust it out. Dennis is going to come on with a secret to share with Kev. That's a season <laughs> two goal. That is that's a right? goal. Yes. That's a good stretch goal. It's not, it's not a stretch goal. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it, though. We believe in you. Uh, I believe. Okay. With the, if you believe in me, Kev, I can do it. Anything then. I believe in you. All right. Um, next, uh, I, I'm not even going to chronologically <laughs> indicate pointers around the episodes anymore. <laughs> but I think generally we're this season will be a bit of a potpourri. Good. Uh, are you impressed that I didn't call it potpourri? Um, actually, yes. In hindsight, I feel like that could definitely fall into the category of words that I feel like you have a I would interesting take on pronouncing. We're getting a lot of, from the, uh, the, for the people that bothered to listen to the movie episodes, we've been called out on a lot of the words we say wrong, <laughs> more than our metadata, metadata conversation, more than your water conversation. People hate the way we say nuclear there's a lot because we're just saying a lot of words it's three hours of us saying words where you're gonna find gaps in our word repertoire oh my gosh i Um, i i actually i'm not sure if i'm privy to this feedback i'm gonna have to get this in uh at least two at least two people but they're our biggest fans shout out to rob and uh Dan, who both hated good. the way that we said. Well, that's good. I need that. I need that. I need someone to tell me that I'm saying um, something wrong. So yeah, nuclear, nuclear. Uh, this this season is going to be a mix of these kind of 45 minute formats. Some of it'll be me talking to stuff about the heyday. Some of it'll be me uh, us having a guest on, or one or both of us having guests on to talk about a. Um, shared secret they might have. And then, but at least 50% of the time, it's going to be your two best cybersecurity buddies, Kevin Den, Wax and Poetic, about these little industry insights we have. Sound good? Sounds fantastic. I'm super happy to be picking this back up again. All right. Go team. Bye.